Welcome everybody. Um, it is now three o'clock, so we will get started. Uh, again, welcome to the COVID-19 webinar series. My name is Mecca Cedarstrom. I will be your moderator today. We have wonderful panelists here to talk about triage of critical care resources during the COVID-19 outbreak. I'll do a quick introduction of our panelists. Uh, we have Michael Christian, who is the Research and Clinical Effectiveness Lead um, for a BART's NHL's Health Trust and the Air Ambulance in London, England. Jeffrey Dichter, who's Associate Professor of Medicine, Division of Pulmonary Allergy, Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. Mary King is the Medical Director of Pediatric Trauma and ICU at Harborview and a Seattle Children's in Seattle, Washington. And Ryan Maves, who is the Infectious Disease Fellow, Fellowship Director and Staff Intensivist the Naval Medical Center in San Diego, California. I'd like to just say again, thank you all for coming and joining us for this conversation. Um, just as a reminder for some who have just joined, you will be muted throughout. I, we are using the Q&A feature and not the chat feature, so all questions, please direct them into your Q&A box. And with that, I will turn it over to our first presenter. Thank you. All right, everyone, thanks so much. Um, I'm uh, Mike Krishnan, I'm an intensivist uh, by background and infectious disease physician from Canada, who now lives here in London, England. Uh, sorry, I'm being a little bit camera shy today. I'm day six still in my uh, recovery from COVID. So uh, uh, having a bad hair day still and sitting here in my pajamas in England. So I'm not, uh, not going online. You can go to the first slide, that'd be great. So I've been asked to briefly speak about uh, triggers uh, regarding uh, triage. And uh, I think one of the key things is this sort of is a simple diagram, but uh, we can actually spend a, a lot of time discussing it. Uh, I'm going to just give a few highlights in terms of what we think about uh, the triggers of triage and set the stage for the, for the other speakers. Um, uh, coming out with this uh, webinar on the uh, website, you can also find a, a little video that actually goes into more details about this. Triage is really a, a demand, demand versus supply issue. And the real trigger for triage, of course, is when your demand exceeds your supply in the context of a crisis surge situation. I think that's the critical part. And in order to really reach um, a crisis surge situation where you're going to get to triage, you have to have actually already implemented measures to try and do all that you can to decrease demand, including public health control measures, treatment to try and keep people from getting, uh, becoming critically ill in the first place. And triage we'll talk about in a second. Then you also have to address the supply side and do all that you can uh, through uh, conventional contingency and then into crisis surge to be able to maximize your supply through staff stuff, space, systems, and as well as uh, um, communication, command and control. So, once you've done all of those things, if you're still in a situation where you either have or you can see that your resources, your demands are going to overwhelm your resources, that's when you think about triaging with the aim of trying to uh, direct those resources that you do have to their greatest benefit. So that's the number one trigger, but it's really important to have that context around the trigger as opposed to just pulling the trigger when you simply have a, a supply that's greater than a demand. Next slide, please. I'll follow on from where Dr. Christian started. My name is Ryan Mapes. I'm a, also an infectious disease and critical care physician uh, in San Diego, California. I should mention that uh, 
things I'm about to say right now are my opinion and do not reflect those of the uh, Department of the Navy, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit here about how we pre prepare for a triage system, uh, how we set up a triage team, and then a basic overview of triage protocols, how they function. Um, so part of the challenge with triage is this is obviously a shift from the normal ethical basis of medicine, where we are doing our utmost to care for an individual patient with, while not unlimited resources, certainly dramatically less constrained resources. Uh, and one of the challenges in triage is determining how do we identify those patients that we can, that we can best assist in an in a extremely difficult situation. So there are different ethical bases that we look at. One is saving the largest number of lives possible. Uh, adjacent to that is consideration of years of life saved. Um, and that, that's a, that is a challenging balance to strike and different communities are approaching them in different ways. Uh, in general, it is considered inappropriate to use age as a cutoff in a triage system. For example, a young person does not automatically preempt an older person. Um, also, there are considerations for special populations. Uh, to what extent does pediatric triage differ from adult triage? And Dr. King will speak about that in greater detail. Uh, should we give special consideration for pregnant women? Should we give special consideration for healthcare workers who are on the front lines and have a, an increased occupational risk for uh, contracting, contracting disease? Triage protocols have to take all of these things into account. And I think one thing that we have to remember is that these solutions that individual communities take, even within a given country, are not necessarily going to be uniform. Um, next on is a tree organizational structure. So how are we going to set up a triage system? So one of the things that we've recommended in our paper and other related papers is the establishment of a regional triage committee. That is that the, the hospitals and healthcare systems in a given community should be broadly comparable, if not effectively the same, in how they perform critical care triage so that one hospital five blocks away from another hospital isn't allocating resources in a different way that may or may not be equitable, depending on what hospital patients go to. So having communication between organizations to set up the ground rules in advance. And of course, this has to be done in collaboration with local, state, provincial governments, depending on where you live and where you work. Where I work in California, San Diego County is very involved in the development of our regional triage plans. And of course, the state will have a great deal of input as well. There does have to be a legal basis for initiating triage. This is not a decision of an individual institution. This has to be decided by some manner of legal authority, be it a county or a state declaring an emergency and declaring that now is the time that we as a community will shift into a crisis standard of care. Uh, can I see the next slide, please? There we go. So this is a, a chart from work by uh, Dr. Christian, Dr. King, and some of our other colleagues, Zach, in 2014, that just sort of explains how this would operate, that individual hospitals will have individual triage teams, triage officers, but they will be communicating with some central committee that uh, will generally be affiliated with the region, uh, with, again, a county or a state or a province. And that committee will have some awareness of what the relative demand at given site may be. It may be that one hospital is considering having to move into triage, whereas other hospitals have space and resources. And this will prevent, would offer an opportunity for 
uh, system to avoid going into triage if there are resources outside of a given hospital that could be allocated. Next, please. So triage teams. So membership of a triage team should include, I would say at least at a minimum, one is physician experienced in critical care medicine. This does not necessarily have to be an intensivist though. This could be an experienced emergency physician uh, in a small community hospital in a relatively rural area where there isn't a practicing intensivist, uh, a hospitalist, a senior clinician with, with familiarity with acute care can perform this task if need be. Um, and this may be an area where telemedicine support could become useful in the future. Would recommend having a, a nurse also experiencing critical care nursing, and then a third individual um, who's there to assist with administration, records, and data management. And what's important is that these triage teams must be distinct from the bedside team managing a patient, that the, the clinicians, the physicians, the nurses, the advanced uh, practice providers who are involved in the care can't be the ones making these decisions, that they have to be made by a group who is separate from the patient. That's partly to help alleviate some of the, the ethical and moral distress that this can provide, that making these decisions can provide to a clinician at the bedside. This is also to help remove bias by making sure that the triage officers um, have access only to key information and not to demographics that may lead to unconscious or conscious bias, such as information about um, age, ethnicity, sexual orientation, or other considerations that could be problematic. Um, it is useful to have access to consultants. That's going to vary very much depending on the nature of a given, uh, given hospital and what resources you have in a community. But there may be times when a triage team will need to speak with, say, a neurosurgeon about a patient with a neurologic catastrophe to try to assess what that individual's likelihood of survival would be in a critical care environment. Next, please. All right. <clears throat> so lastly, let's just do a brief overview of how triage protocols work. So the goal of a protocol is to break down patients into three distinct groups, people who are too well to require critical care resources, people who are sick and are likely to benefit from critical care resources, and then people who are too sick to be likely to recover even if critical care resources are allocated. And the goal of the triage protocol is to try to direct resources towards that second group. Now, one thing that has to be said about the protocols is that heart exclusion criteria based solely on age or on specific comorbidities are strongly discouraged. And uh, this has been a shift over the last few years in how we think about triage. But instead of saying, okay, no one above the age of 80 uh, will be placed on mechanical ventilation, instead what we seek to do is integrate multiple factors. So looking at different ways to have an idea of someone's baseline level of health. What is their one to two year survival independent of their critical illness that brings them to the hospital today. How to best assess this is still an ongoing discussion. I think within the community that studies this, frailty scores are one possibility. There have been some discussion of things like a Charleston comorbidity index or some other way of assessing a kind of global state of health and survival independent of critical illness. These scores may take age into account, but again, age is not a primary deciding factor in these. The next thing we have to consider is severity of their current illness. Um, uh, in our paper, we've discussed how we think that there are limitations to physiologic-based scoring systems like SOFA, uh, modified SOFA, and other scores. But 
finding some way to assess someone's likelihood of survival based on their current illness uh, is very important. Uh, for example, and this is important because a triage system has to take into account all patients who present with critical illness, not patients who show up with COVID alone, for example. You're also deciding how to allocate resources between people with intracranial hemorrhages, with uh, uh, end-stage liver disease and variceal bleeds, and deciding how to allocate them, you may need to use disease-specific indicators to get a better handle on someone's prognosis. Next, please. So this is a chart from our paper that just, and based on earlier work by Dr. Christian and our other colleagues, that lays out a, a, a simplified version of a triage decision algorithm. How precisely a given community uh, determines this is variable. And there are some examples of some state protocols you can look at online in the state of Washington and the uh, uh, states of Minnesota and Massachusetts, for example, have widely available protocols that you can find online. But the first step is to determine, does the patient meet the criteria for critical care services? In general, this is gonna, going to mean mechanical ventilation or need for some manner of circulatory, generally basic pressure support. If no, uh, then they go to the ward. If the answer is yes, then the next question is, does the patient or their designated surrogate agree to receive intensive care? Uh, if so, um, then we decide, okay, what is their expected risk of, of mortality based on their comorbidity and these factors that we discussed relating to the severity of their acute illness? If their risk is uh, excessive, then we would transition that patient to a general ward with best supportive care. And while uh, Dr. Dichter will speak about this in greater detail, it is important to remember that not allocating someone mechanical ventilation does not mean no care. It does not necessarily mean comfort care or palliative care, although it may, depending on that patient's individual circumstance. What it does mean is the best available care under the circumstances, including careful symptom management, oxygen therapy if appropriate, fluid therapy, nutrition, good nursing care, all of those other things that go into taking care of a patient beyond the ventilator. If the patient is allocated critical care services, they do need to be periodically reassessed. The frequency of that reassessment uh, is gonna depend very much on the underlying disease state. And we know so far that COVID lasts a long time, or at least it can in the critically ill. And the frequency of that reassessment is going to be variable. Um, but there may come times during someone's critical illness where we'll have to decide whether continued provision of critical care resources such as a mechanical ventilator um, in a time of extreme shortage is appropriate. And those will again have to be made not by the bedside clinicians, but by the triage officers. And those are gonna be some very difficult decisions for all of us to make. I'm gonna turn it over now to my, uh, to my colleagues to continue, but we'll be available for any questions. Thank you. Hi, this is Jeff Dichter, Associate Professor from the University of Minnesota, and I appreciate everybody being here. Uh, I'll be addressing some of the legal issues, um, palliative care, uh, communication, and healthcare worker needs. Uh, next slide, please, Beth. Um, when you look at the legal and regulatory concerns regarding triage of scarce resources, um, this is always a little bit of a um, contentious issue and a, uh, certainly one that healthcare workers are very concerned about and like to talk about appropriately. Um, and so there's two things I'll talk about is number one, the processes of care, and number two, interfacing with your local uh, and state governments. Um, again, it's important to realize that when you're, even when you're in triage of scarce resources, you have defined care plans, both for those who are going to be able to access the care 
um, as well as those who may not qualify for the care may may not reach a priority to the point where they they receive the care and are excluded from that care. Um, that part of the care, the critical care, being intubated or possibly circulatory support, vasopressor support. But the most important thing is having a defined process um, is absolutely crucial to addressing the concerns, not only of best care, but of liability as well. All those things that Ryan had just described are important to do, the personnel you have, um, the plans you have, uh, but they also have to have, a def uh, as again, a defined process or protocol, if you will. There should be documentation built into that, when decisions are made, why they were made. Um, if there's an appeals process, there may not necessarily be an appeals process, but it's recommended for most protocols to have an appeals process. Uh, those need to be documented uh, when they occur. Um, and as importantly as anything, there needs to be a systematic post hoc review. Typically, this would be recommended every week or so to look at all decisions are made. Are they being made systematically based on your criteria? Is there any evidence or concern that maybe some unknown or possible biases entering into those decisions? Um, and then again, the most important thing um, when looking at your government support is what is the indication for initiating triage? And as Michael Christian said at the start, it's usually the demand overwhelms the supply. And this is usually not a subtle moment. Um, we've all been watching the news coming out of New York City, as well as Italy and other China and other parts of the world. It's usually quite dramatic when it becomes clear that the supply is really going to, it is going to be overtaken by the demand for what's available. Few state governments really have um, defined processes for how to, if you will, pull a trigger for um, taking a position on scarce resources. But based on the dire nature of those circumstances, most local and state governments have a process, whether it's publicly known or not, for reaching a point where they're going to make an announcement, they're gonna take in all the input from their partners in the healthcare industry, all of us, and they're gonna make a decision whether they can support a declaration of an emergency such that standards of care are altered. Um, I went before coming to this, uh, the webinar today, looked online to verify that uh, Governor Cuomo of New York, for instance, for those who've been following, had such a declaration about a week or so ago that absolved healthcare workers um, from documentation, from errors in judgment, um, from a number of other things, but the purpose of his his declaration was to have people focus on care and not having to be burdened necessarily with the other pieces of care that may not be directly related to care. It wasn't a triage of scarce resources per se, but still a declaration that happened in the ninth hour, in the minute, in the moment of a crisis to support that care. Again, just to summarize briefly, having defined process for all these things, planning them ahead of time is the most crucial part of not only best care, but addressing the liability concerns as well. Next slide, please. It's important to realize when patients are not considered appropriate for aggressive care, uh, aggressive meaning being on a ventilator or possible ICU care, that is not equal to moving them to comfort care. It's important to realize that many of those patients, those of us in critical care know that there are many patients who may choose not to go on a ventilator at their own choice, but still survive the episode despite um, all appearances that they may not. So it's important to provide the care. It may be oxygen. It may be um, high flow oxygen. Um, there may be places and institutions where vasopressors can be provided outside of an ICU if that's what's needed. The important thing is to provide all the other care that's available. Um, I think it's important to address 
end of life type issues such as do not resuscitate or do not intubate. If a patient's not gonna be on a ventilator, there should be some systematic structural process a protocol, if you will, for not intubating them if you can't be provided a ventilator. Whether not doing chest compressions or, or um, you know, shocking defibrillation is appropriate. It may be something that's patient specific, although I think most of us in the circumstance would recommend that a do not resuscitate order is still appropriate. Some of the other palliative care measures, which I would strongly recommend having standard processes for, um, would include opioid support for patients in respiratory failure, and certainly any other comfort measures uh, that patients may need. Um, and again, it's having, <clears throat> excuse me, having a systematic and structured approach to this part of their care. Next slide, please, Beth. Uh, family support is probably among the most challenging issues that we faced in COVID-19. And I suspect almost all of you, if not all of you, have already started to interface with some of these limitations. Mary King will talk a little bit more about this as pediatrics. Um, the nature of the pediatric family support may be different than adults. But what's probably most important is that when you're in a triage of scarce resources that the local government and certainly local institutions communicate this to the community. And this is part of developing the perception of fairness of treatment for everyone. Um, not being able to have families at the bedside, similar to other communities, our community has prohibited families from being at their bedside. It really makes it a more difficult conversation when you're limiting care. Um, the technology available to us is certainly FaceTime, plain telephone, you know, audio support. Um, and I, it's still, it, it's the best we have. And to some degree, I think our populations are, are, you know, the people in our communities are beginning to understand and accept having to work with that technology as a limitation, but it still makes this communication that much more difficult. Um, again, when you're communicating bad news, not being provided care to families and caregivers, it really should be done by either the primary care teams. In some institutions, they may choose that to be the, uh, the triage teams, certainly palliative care. Um, the role of clergy is very appropriate um, and very similar to other times in care when we're not worried in a, about being in a pandemic, just trying to have everybody involved in the care if a patient or family has clergy involved, to involve them in the care and to use the technology to the degree that we can. Not to minimize the nature of the pandemic that we're in, this is a really difficult issue with family support when we're reaching out basically with only technology, with mostly technology. Next slide, please, Beth. Um, and this is one, healthcare worker support is an issue that often I think is often really neglected uh, particularly when you look at the volume of work required of all of us. Healthcare workers by their nature are giving individuals. Um, everybody does as much as they can to help their patients, to help each other. Um, but it should be acknowledged that there is a tremendous amount of moral distress that goes with working in a pandemic, particularly when we're limiting care that we otherwise wouldn't limit. When we're basically faced with telling patients and families that they're not gonna get care that they would otherwise receive. Um, Healthcare workers develop symptoms often, if you will, of, of strain, uh, depression, um, feelings of isolation. Um, so it's important to acknowledge that. I mean, the insufficiency of PPE is an ongoing uh, strain for all of us. Um, hopefully that will improve as time goes on. Uh, but the risk of not having your personal safety should not be minimized. That is a very important consideration for all of us that affects how all of us feel. 
Some of the things that have been based on other pandemics that may help are certainly having debriefs among the caregivers about what's working and what's not. Um, I think we all feel better when we feel like we have input into our work environment um, to really try and um, look at the things that are working and what's not and try and evolve that, that work environment, that standard of care to things that work better for us. Um, and really for, I think, organizations to be really sensitive to the needs of healthcare workers, particularly as we worry about our families. Um, I'm not sure that there's always a lot that can be done other than simply to recognize that. Some families, some healthcare workers will go to hotel rooms that are provided free. In Minnesota, we're fortunate to have free hotel rooms. Um, and people may stay away from their family for periods of time when they're working with uh, patients with COVID disease. But certainly to be sensitive to the work environments and the, the needs of healthcare workers, and probably just in a generic way, just to be sensitive to the fact that all of us are under a lot of stress and may be feeling that way. Next slide, please, Beth. And at this point, I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and turn it over to my colleague and friend, Mary King. Thank you, Jeff. Um, I'm Mary King. I'm an associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Washington in Seattle. I am by trade a pediatric intensivist at Seattle Children's. I'm also the director of the pediatric trauma ICU at our level one trauma center, Harborview Medical Center, where COVID response has been quite active. Um, I'm here today to provide some voice to the pediatric perspective both in terms of the patient and the pediatric uh, care community. Next slide, please. So what is different about pediatrics in COVID-19? We all recognize it's different, but what is different when it comes to triage? Well, one thing when you're thinking about triage, we think about, well, what is your population? And the pediatric population is quite significantly under-affected from COVID-19 as compared to the adult population. So one question that I live with these days is, how do we define our population when it comes to triage? Is it the entire population? Is it the adult population separate from the pediatric population? Or is it some combination of the two, somewhere in between? The second thing I think about when I think about triage is resources. Dr. Christian talked a little bit about this with staff space and stuff. Um, so what are the resources we need to think about um, when it comes to triage? Well, for pediatrics, specifically pediatric critical care medicine, many of these resources are potentially shareable between adult and pediatric patients. However, many there are some that are siloed that are only relevant to pediatric patients, such as neonatal ventilators. The other thing that's different is that many children get critical care in separate hospitals from adults, where we don't have systems in place to take care of adults on a day-to-day -day basis. Some children do receive care in adult pediatric centers that are mixed. So thinking about those resources some are potentially shareable and some are unique. Again, kind of similar to the population issue. Um, and then the third thing that I think is really critical to think about when it comes to pediatric triage in the setting of COVID-19 is our cultural perspective on children as compared to adults. And I would say in general, we are more protective of children. 
Um, and that's true whether you're a parent or a care provider. Um, the way we deliver our medicine is different. Um, and how do those cultural differences change how we think about adult and pediatric triage? So I wanted to go through those three concepts because I think those three concepts are really important when you think about some of the specific questions we have in front of us today when it comes to how does pediatrics play a role in, in triage? So currently, um, everyone, many people in this country are in contingency. We think about um, the surge continuum as three different phases. So conventional contingency and crisis. Today, we've been focusing a lot on crisis standards of care. But I would argue that many of us today are in contingency. We're not in our regular day-to-day -day planning. What we're doing is all those things that Dr. Christian explained that we're doing to try and avoid crisis. So things like conservation, um, adapting, re and we're not to the point of um, reallocating. So I would argue that instead of focusing right now on crisis standards of care for kids, the most important thing we can do in the pediatric community is really focus on pediatric contingency planning to avoid crisis of standard of care for everyone, including adult crisis standard of care. Um, and because I think the question has come up over and over, well, when would we go to crisis for children? And I think that's complicated. Um, and that's complicated because the population is potentially different, the resources are potentially different, and our cultural perspectives are potentially different. So it behooves us as part of the pediatric community to really advocate for avoiding crisis for everyone. So what do I mean by that? So I've listed out um, a few points here that I think are important and that are pretty generalizable. However, there will be differences from community to community. And it really depends on the makeup of pediatrics in that community and how it relates to adult systems. Um, one thing that um, is, is happening in many systems is we're uh, advocating for condensing pediatric care to fewer centers to allow for more adult surge capacity in adult pediatric centers. Um, so this is one step towards building um, adult surge. Another step that many have done, and I know in New York City, this has really gone to even extremes, is advocating for liberalizing age thresholds in pediatric ICUs. So for example, currently in Seattle Children's, we've um, liberalized that to 25 years, and that would not be our typical standard. But I know in New York City, those age thresholds have been liberalized up to even in the 40s. Um, I think the one thing that's um, pretty universal for most pediatric intensivists is that, you know, ideally we would not be taking care of adults with very specific um, adult comorbidities that put them at risk for things uh, like heart attacks, um, it's uh, severe strokes, etc. that would really be more typical of adult processes. Um, but if it's really um, a, a patient with um, lung, respiratory failure, that would be something that would be very typically managed in a PICU um, every day of the week. Um, and number three, I think is also important, and that is just the pure sharing of resources. So we have, you know, especially because um, elective procedures are not happening right now in Seattle, 
we, we have extra ventilators, we have extra high flow nasal cannula. So, you know, as things are shifting more towards a less invasive approach with these patients, um, you know, we are sharing some of those resources to our adult colleagues because they're not currently being used at our pediatric centers at the same numbers. Um, we can also share some of that expertise as well. Um, and then number four, I think is really important. Um, I know a lot of pediatricians want to jump in and, and be part of this COVID response and are looking to figure out how they can best do that. I do think it's critical that we preserve pediatric systems. Um, and that's part why I think that number one recommendation of a condensing care to fewer pediatric centers is important. We need those pediatric centers, those pediatric specialists. We need pediatric cancer care. We, we need those systems, pediatric trauma care. We need those systems in place for day-to-day -day management of our children. Um, and we will need them in place on the other side of COVID-19. So thinking creatively how to preserve those systems because sometimes we have very limited providers who can provide some of those care. So it may not be the right answer for those providers to decide that they're gonna jump in and help out with COVID care in their you know, neighboring adult center. The important thing may be to actually continue to provide some of that pediatric care because there may be not anyone else who can replace them if they actually do get sick. And then lastly, this gets to, I think, um, the most difficult question, and that is the timing of pediatric crisis standards of care. If, if we do get to a point where we get to crisis um, because of COVID-19, um, and we're seeing that in our adult centers, the question that I have is, well, what does that mean for children? And when would we go to crisis for children? especially when children aren't being affected by COVID-19 in significant numbers at all. Um, I've had one patient at Seattle Children's in the ICU. Um, so, and I, I don't think there's a clear answer to this question. And I think it really depends on the community. Um, for us in Seattle, we've created separate algorithms. We have a pediatric um, algorithm for crisis uh, standards of care, and then we have um, an adult algorithm. And so the triggers may be different because it may be that the population affected and the resources for that population may be different. So having one blanket approach for both um, potentially different uh, populations may not be the way to go. But again, it depends on that community, how those resources are distributed who's affected in that population, and also what are some of the cultural um, values of that community that really dictate um, the ethical principles of, of how we would move forward. I'm gonna stop there, and I thank you everybody for including me. Thank you to our panelists. Um, we have a bunch of questions that have been flowing through the Q&A. I will start off with a few that are in this bucket of who should make up the triage team. There are a couple of people who asked about adding ethicists or having ethics support on triage teams. And I know there are multiple models out there on how to incorporate ethics, um, but I would open it up. I would just say from my perspective as an ethicist, I believe ethics is, uh, needs to be involved at all levels of the triage decision-making in whatever format that you can. But I also recognize that many places don't have clinical ethicists on staff, uh, they may have a committee. 
So incorporating people who have ethics training or clinical ethics training in whatever format you can uh, makes the most sense, as well as looking at regional ethics um, support. If you're in a rural area where you may not have a lot of additional support, you could look into contacting clinical ethicists that are at some of the bigger institutions around to help in your decision making. So I'll open it up to my panelists on thoughts on um, adding clinical ethics in the triage model and, and whether uh, at a triage officer or in a committee format, what makes the most sense for you? Hi, it's uh, Mike, do you mind if I start with this one? So I think, um, so having spent the past several months certainly very involved in discussing and interacting with people across Europe and elsewhere with this uh, in Italy and also colleagues in New York and whatnot, but mostly in Italy and what we've been facing here in London. I think one of the things that I've come to realize over the past few months is that there's, there's even a, a crisis surge within triage. And the stuff that we've um, uh, published in the past is certainly an ideal situation. And I think definitely in an ideal world, you know, you'd like to have more than one person involved, a committee, if you can have an ethicist there, that's always um, beneficial. They've always been my best friends in the ICU. Um, but uh, I think what we've sort of heard from particularly uh, it's a number of conversations I've had with, uh, um, uh, with uh, Professor Rello from Spain over the past few weeks of just the sheer volume of patients they have coming in, the number of decisions that have to be made 24-7, and the time to do this, uh, even having a dedicated person to do it outside of a, outside of um the clinicians that are on the front line is a challenge, let alone having a team of people or having a team of people that have an ethicist available 24 seven there on the front lines. So I think, you know, one of the things that we start with and what we talk about in the document here is, is what to aim for is the best sort of situation and standard. And, and then you kind of have to adapt to your situation. But I totally agree with what um, we just heard about having that support available is really important to the team that are operational and whether it's someone in the hospital who's on a committee that oversees the triage process or whether it's someone on telemedicine who's an ethicist or some other way to support people is definitely important. And that's what I think is emphasized in, the, in this whole paper is that there has to be a system in place and an infrastructure around this. It's not just something you run off and can do on its own. And that's why it's important to think about it in advance. That's me over. Thank you. Um, I'm going to group a few questions together that are still sort of in the same category of the triage model. Um, there are questions about operationalizing it. How would the teams be operationalized with this idea of keeping the um, protected information separate? Is that real in the day and age of EMRs? Um, and really, if you try to do that, can you um, honestly use your triage protocol to address some of the racial disparities that we know are out there if you um, blind yourself to some of the, those important features? And so how do we um, create triage protocols or triage teams that try to address the bias issue, um, but also don't fall into the bucket of trying to be colorblind when addressing color issues are very important? This is Mary King. I actually would like to take a first stab at that. Um, in Seattle, what we've um, decided to do is actually create a red cap survey so that um, the 
primary clinical teams managing the patient can enter the selected information, which is de-identified in terms of any racial factors, just addressing that one specific question, but goes through um, the various bits of information, including calculating scores, et cetera. And then that red cap survey was that would then go to the triage team. So the triage team would not have direct access to the EMR. They would be shielded from that information. And so it would all be de-identified. Um, and so that is the way to entirely keep it separate. Um, the other thing is that we would then have oversight of those triage teams with a regional um, triage team that would, the goal there to standardize the processes as much as possible. And I'm curious to hear from the panel because I imagine there are multiple solutions to that very good logistical question of what process do you put in place to keep things de-identified. Hi, it's Jeff Dichter, and I'll go ahead and, and add as well. I think that it's an incredibly difficult question that you ask of how to be completely equitable and fair across, um, across the spectrum. I work for a health system where I think we have 280 ventilators or something like that and 400 ICU beds, you know, including all of our surge beds, somewhere in that range. So when you start to look at a triage circumstance where you're managing that many patients across you know, several different hospitals and sites, it becomes more complex to, um, to manage. And I think ultimately the uh, bedside providers are, are gonna be involved in, in the care, obviously. Uh, the triage team is probably gonna be involved in knowing what's going on with each patient as well they should be. And ultimately it's left up to the triage officer. One of the things in, that we have found in our discussions is having somebody who's such as an ethicist, um, on the triage team or the oversight team to be able to help us think about those issues on a moment-to-moment, day-to-day basis, to really be mindful of, of disparities. I don't know how much it, in any given circumstance um, we can address those when we're looking at, you know, what's the short-term prognosis of any given patient, uh, but at least it provides some sense of mindfulness about that within the process itself. Um, and I don't know how, how to operationalize that when you're looking at such a large volume of patients beyond that. And just to, just to add to what, uh, what Dr. King and Dr. Dichter have said here, you know, this is also a place where, where ethics can be involved as kind of a quality check, right? Because we have uh, like the, the red cap survey, which is a, a, a great concept, and, and uh, we're looking at how we would operationalize something comparable in, in San Diego, although not with red cap, um, maybe with red cap. But, but having the involvement of, of an ethicist at, at the bare minimum of the regional level, uh, both in protocol development and then uh, as a quality check to make sure that we are that whatever system we put into place and you know and we've been lucky as a society that we've you know this is the first time we've really had to consider doing this for real and and knowing that um, that any choice we make may be imperfect at the beginning having involvement of wise people who We'll take a look at it and decide. Okay, we have we have attempted to de-identify and remove bias from our system as best we can. Are we actually achieving that goal? That's going to be a thing we'll have to look at going forward. Hopefully, hopefully we won't have to look at it because we won't need to 
resort to this approach, but if we do, then we're going to need to make sure that, uh, that we are assessing the, the results of what we attempt to do here. Thank you. Thank you. And I think that I will just add that um, one of the ways that we're trying to address the inequity bucket is by adding an equity and inclusion officer onto our triage model to allow for that to be an upfront lens and, and trying to, to manage it. And I think that it is it will be a difficult thing to address. It is not something that can be answered with the tools that we have right now um, for this pandemic. I, this pandemic is just highlighting things that we already knew were in existence uh, and it's just shedding the light on how terrible the things were prior to and, and what does that mean? We, we as a country haven't yet dealt with institutional and structural racism and so how we can't really fix those bigger issues with this modeling and dealing with this triage protocols but what we can do is be, be sure that we'll do our due diligence to try and, and address as much as we can as a, in, in an upfront manner in some way, shape, or form, and then kind of when this relaxes, look back and say, how can we do better so that this doesn't happen again? Yeah. Um, and so uh, in the spirit of more related to the triage team, there was a question about allowing for um, SOFA to be used, which we all know is one of those big concerns. Uh, so looking at triage protocols and, and how we're using scoring mechanisms, I've got a couple of questions about decision-making algorithms using SOFA, um, potentially using, um, looking at not um, having a triage cut point of ventilator and intubation, but looking at uh, trying to avoid using some sort of uh, rapid ETI and instead using high flow or CPAP. So decisions around the actual um, process, I guess I would call it, <laughs> on how we make these decisions. Who would like to, to take that on? Oh, since it's so far, <laughs> why don't I jump in? Everyone's waiting. It's Mike. Um, so we addressed this a little bit in the paper, and I think, uh, you know, 14 years ago, we first introduced SOFA as a potential tool for this because it, um, it was a new score, relatively new score at the time, only been out a few years. It uh, is simple to use and uh, doesn't require complex lab values and um, seems fairly objective. There's a few challenges that have been pointed out uh, over the past number of years. And in 2014, we recommended moving away from SOFA. And we also um, uh, discussed that a little bit further in the current publication. There's sort of two big buckets of groups. The first one is that um, the score itself has some limitations, um, uh, some, uh, some, some issues with uh, uh, its uh, prognostic uh, accuracy across the scores. You know, the higher scores, it's really fairly accurate. The lower scores, um, it's hard to, you know, you've got a score of four for one patient had one in several scores, they, in several um, uh, aspects, they'll do quite well. But if you have four in a single organ system, particularly GCS, they'll maybe likely potentially do very poorly. Um, the other issue is that uh, uh, there is some subjectivity around GCS and, uh, and the cardiovascular component. And then um, finally, just trying to decide what thresholds to use. I think for me, the biggest thing with this one is that for COVID, particularly as we saw with H1N1, in single organ system failure, uh, the SOFA scores aren't that high. 
So in all the data that's been published, you know, the three big studies looking at uh, critical care patients that have come out so far, the SOFA scores in both survivors and non-survivors are generally under six or seven. And that's kind of the cut point most SOFA scores use. So it, it has less ability to, um, to discern. It may be useful for patients with non-COVID um, and uh, when used with other things, but I think, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the things that we're looking at and um, I, I don't have an unfortunate next best answer at the moment. Well, we do, but it's in press. So anyways. <laughs> and I think just to add on to that, uh, Michael, there's uh, questions about the use of the use of comorbidity scoring and um, getting back again at the inequities with comorbidity scoring. Um, are, do you foresee any other um, model that could assist that the, helps to try and decrease um, uh, people of color and communities of color from getting a, a worse score because of the comorbidity factor on top of SOFA? I don't have a particular answer to that. I think Jeff might uh, have some uh, answer to that. I think the, the comorbidity issue is a challenging one because it's um, again, and it's not all comorbidities are the same in terms of how do you actually factor them in? Cause it's really a comorbidity that has an impact on that patient's chance of doing well in ICU and surviving that, that, uh, that sort of short-term illness and how much does that comorbidity impact that? And, and some comorbidities will have a much more profound impact on that than others. So it's, um, you know, there's some, a number of different groups have been proposing some different ways to look at comorbidities and but i certainly take your point you have to you don't want to disadvantage people that come into this disadvantaged already um uh, because of uh other factors and that's that's uh not just an issue with triage it's obviously an issue with, with healthcare in in general i think that's a really um I think that there is a balance between trying to use objective data such as it is in clinical judgment of your experts who are your triage teams and your oversight team together. Um, there's no perfect system. None of these systems or tools, if you will, are validated for triage for the purpose that we're using them for. So for all of us, we're trying to make a best judgment as to what tools make the most sense. I think having several objective tools such as an organ failure assessment tool, SOFA we're talking about, imperfect though it is. Um, you know, we've talked about frailty index indices, functional indices, um, duration, you know, some tool to try and guesstimate duration of need for what that, uh, for the resource, the ventilator, if you will, what they're gonna, what they may be needed short-term versus long-term, for instance. Um, but coupled with that, you have to, make your best guess to have a structured system, number one. Number two is I think it does need to be complemented by the experience and expertise of a triage officer. Um, and lastly, which may be in many ways for many of us the hardest part is you have to develop some form of a learning system. You have to be able to either use your own data to learn as you go along, or at least look at what others are learning, such as at academic health centers, to try and adapt what they're using for your populations but there's no perfect tool. What I would recommend again is having a tool, having the thought processes to go through with a team and a group of, to develop that, and then to acknowledge that it may need to adjust 
and change over time. And I think those are probably the most important elements that go into it. Yes, thank you. Um, so we've got a couple of questions on um, taking into account things like uh, children and when to include them. So Mary, I'll ask this one to you. Um, do you believe that children should be included in the decision-making tree? And if so, at what point in the triage model uh, should we, I guess when we get to crisis standards, should we start deciding about um, triaging children? Yeah, I, I think that's, it's a great question. And that's the question that keeps me up at night and has kept me up at night for the past two months, frankly. Um, I think the answer to that question is different in New York City than it is in Seattle. Um, I, I think, you know, unfortunately, I can't give a very straightforward answer to that question because it really depends on the affected population and the affected and available resources. Um, so, for instance, uh, in New York City, my PICU colleagues are taking care of adult patients. Um, and so, that is a different setting um, than here in Seattle, where right now pediatrics has not been called to do that um, because we, we don't have the same burden of disease. Um, so I think no matter what, the answer to that question is going to be different in two different populations like that. However, even beyond that, I think there are cultural decisions that um, each community really needs to, to make. I think we're very fortunate in Seattle. We have a very active public health system. And we've actually done engagement, community engagement projects on pandemics here in the region. And so we can actually go back to those community engagement proje projects and look at the answers of our community members that represented different parts of our community to look at how, how do those values inform our decision making. And I think the answers to those questions are going to vary community to community. For us, um, the way that we've um, tackled that question here is that we have separate algorithms for adults and for children. And so the triggers for both are potentially different, but that is also because here in Washington State, we have very few pediatric hospitals. So much of our pediatric care is very, very isolated. Um, and that may be very different in other cities where there are many more hospitals taking care of adults and children. And so they have to think differently about how their resources are allocated. And that's just the reality of the way the health system is created. Um, and so it may be there that it would make sense at the same time to go live because every that, that to go to crisis because everybody already is in contingency. Whereas here, we're, we're not all to the same level of contingency in Seattle for children that we are for adults. And so I think there would be, um, there would be reason to move forward with some of that further contingency planning for children before we would get to that point of activating crisis for, for children here in Seattle. So I'm using those examples because those are concrete um, pictures of how those communities and resources and populations can really look different. Um, and so I think it's, it's really important for us as um, healthcare providers um, in, the, in our own communities to play an active role in, in that conversation. And, and that's why, for me, I think it's so important, even though I know right now this is really in, 
it's largely an adult problem. I think it's really important to have these thoughtful conversations about pediatrics now instead of in the moment. Thank you. Ryan, did you want to add to that um, and where you see they fit in the model? Oh, I, I am grossly unqualified to speak about pediatric issues. I, my, my solution to those questions is to ask Mary what she thinks. But the, uh, and I continue asking everyone I meet on the street, so that's kind of where I am with it. I think the reality, though, that if I'm going to give you a very frank answer, you know, the question comes down to, would you take a child off a ventilator to give it to yeah. an adult? That is the real person question, right? And um, most people I ask, they say no. Yeah. And, and and so that's the, that's the kind of elephant in the room response. And so then yeah. what do I do with that information and how do I move forward in a productive way? And I think it's very challenging. Um, yeah. And again, that can vary. And I think it's important to keep asking. And I don't know, yeah. Neka, I'm curious if you have any different response to that question because I think your experience is invaluable. Yeah, no, I think that that is, that's the big where the rubber meets the road, right? I mean, the idea is if you if you don't look at age as a determinant, which some of the questions and was the direction in which I was going to go to next is how to incorporate age in a manner that is not um, age and disability. I guess you can put them both in the bucket of uh, things that we should not discriminate against for. And so if if we take that out, then you do run the risk of having a younger patient put in the same bucket as an older patient and then randomize because most of these tools when we get to the reallocation element talk about a randomization structure so if we're doing that then you do have the the idea of the extremes right the 85 year old that's randomized with the 15 year old um, and nobody feels good about the idea of an 85 year old getting the vent over the 15 year old but then how do we make decisions that allow for um age to be factored in uh, and still maintain integrity of the model and not be discriminatory because uh, that 85-year-old could be a very healthy, very active, no comorbidity 85-year-old. Um, and I think that that's where a lot of people are still working on figuring out how to incorporate. Um, I will turf it to Jeff to discuss a little bit about that because I know that we've been working hard here on incorporating age in a manner that um, maintains the ethics integrity as well. And there are many who are asking about how do we use age? Is it possibility to make it uh, an exclusion criteria? Uh, and if you're looking at life, you're saved. Doesn't that automatically create a de facto bias against age, et cetera? So the, that's a group of questions that we'll now have the panelists address. I just think it's a difficult question with age. Um, and the question that we ask ourselves is, how does age affect the disability of the underlying illness, the comorbidity of the underlying illness? Um, age is a factor. You know, we, at some point as you age, you develop other complications and, you know, eventually we die of old age at some point in time. Um, so it can't be used of itself, but it also can't be ignored in the context of the comorbidity. I think we struggled with this in Minnesota. We struggle with it looking at the COVID illness data such as it is, if you're over 65 and certainly if you're over 80, I think your prognosis is pretty dismal with this particular disease if you are on So we struggle with how do we, um, we had a conference call today, how do we account for that? 
So it's really, it's, it's a really good I wouldn't ignore it. And I think it, again, how does it affect the short-term the short-term probability of survival for the underlying comorbidities that you're looking at? And that's probably as detailed a, a response as I can have. Um, I know our time, but Ryan, yes, yeah. you may go for it. And, and this actually ties into considerations for other special populations as well. One that comes up often is pregnancy. Um, I know that uh, in the ethics community, there's some, you know, I think we're, those of us who wrestle with this are unsure how to treat pregnancy as a criterion for special consideration. Uh, it, you know, uh, I think children are, are broadly accepted uh, as, a, as a group who deserves special consideration, although there have to be, you know, there has to be some recognition of situations where a child may not benefit from critical care resources. Uh, with pregnancy, you get into the issue of years of life saved, because in a sense, you have two, two, two lives with years in them to potentially save. But what does that do in terms of excluding women who choose not to be pregnant or women who are unable to be pregnant? Does that put them at a, set them at a, at a relative disadvantage? Um, whereas when you speak to kind of community engagement groups, they, people are broadly supportive of that special consideration, but we know that it's imperfect. And so making those decisions is, is going to be an ongoing challenge. And I think that that's, again, one of those great places where having emphasis involved is going to make a big difference. Don't worry, Mary, when they're teenagers, they don't want to come and see you anymore. No, it's fine. I apologize. <laughs> um, and I just want to really quickly, before we close out, get um, discuss the, the issue that is near and dear to a lot of our hearts the issue of healthcare workers and um, prioritization of them. So if anyone wants to discuss that, please take over. I'll just say that here in Washington, um, we decided to take that off. Um, we decided that we didn't have a way to not be biased in how to include or not include that. Um, and that it was a very slippery slope in deciding who healthcare workers were or essential workers, and you can argue one versus the other. And so in terms of implementing it, it seems like it'd be very challenging. I apologize. Nothing to apologize for. We, we've had a similar discussion in Southern California about the best, uh, the best approach to that. I think our, our initial thought was that uh, a preference for people with high-risk occupations, not just physicians or nurses, but uh, janitorial staff, EMTs, the the clerk at the front desk in the emergency department would all be people worthy of consideration as a tiebreaker, not as a kind of automatic, you get the ventilator kind of setting. But uh, just as uh, Mary described, the, the, oper the operationalization of that is, is proving to be a challenge and, and we'll, we'll see how that winds up turning out in our, in our uh, final determinations. And I would recommend having the conversation. Oops, I'm sorry. I would recommend having the conversation. Oh, we're having it. The elephant yeah. in the room. Yeah, yeah, but the the conflict of interest was brought up uh, by some of our colleagues locally here, and that was a a, a dramatic moment in the virtual room when we all appreciated the depth of that. Yeah, and and Ryan, I guess the one other thing I want to comment on, and this was the theme that really drove it home, is that probably the most important thing to all of us that have been working on these algorithms is that probably the most important thing is that the public actually believes in them. And yeah. so 
that that issue we felt really could sacrifice um, the trust that yeah, the community absolutely. may or may not have in us. Right. And even that that was so fundamental, that kind of outrode any other factor for us. Yeah, that's, that's a, it's a great point. Thank you all and thank you for joining this webinar. I would like to say a big thanks for our panelists for joining us and, and for all the work that you're doing. Uh, this webinar will be available uh, pretty soon after this is closed on the CHESS website. It's going to be videoed and archived. If you have any other questions, I'm sure you can email any of us directly. And um, have a wonderful day, everybody. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.